And Lord, I pray that for each of us who have just given applause will be not for a performance, but before the applause of the God of whom we sing. And God, you are a God who is indeed great and majestic. You are the God who does indeed fight on our behalf. You are the God who goes before us. You are the God in whom we can trust because you are the God who is utterly and absolutely faithful. And yet, Lord, as we think about how grand you are and how majestic you are, how powerful you are, these kinds of thoughts must lead us to a full understanding of who you are and how you revealed yourself. That in Jesus Christ, we have God come in the flesh. And this Jesus Christ is not only the Lion of Judah conquering enemies, but he is also the slain Lamb of God. And it is this Jesus who humbled himself to become obedient even to the point of death on the cross. It is this slain Lamb of God who is merciful, who is patient, in whose kindness leads us to repentance. It is the slain Lamb of God, this Jesus, who is attentive to our heart's cries, our needs, who attends to us. And Father, you have asked us that we are to be in this world emissaries of Christ. We are to be the ones who stand for him, who speak of him, and who live in light of him. And Lord, for many people in our culture today, we have only focused on the God who is warrior, on the God who is strong, on the God who is conqueror. And we have neglected to a great deal the God who is also the suffering lamb. So would you help us to become the kind of church that would take these two truths together? That we are victorious in Christ. We need not fear our greatest enemy who is Satan. We need not fear death which always looms over our minds because we know that you have conquered both. Our greatest and most fierce battle is with the sin that we struggle with every day. And we know that you are victorious and therefore we are victorious. And yet at the same time, Lord, you've asked us to be merciful and kind and patient and loving and gentle. And God, to hold these two truths together is difficult. So grant us your grace, we pray. Let the Holy Spirit abide, us, abide in us in such powerful ways that we will be faithful to your calling and we will bring you honor and glory by the manner in which we live. And as we come to your word now, Lord, the same posture of humility would you grant it to us that we may be conformed more into the image of Christ by what we hear today. Lord, we gathered in this place for this very reason, to meet with you together as your people. So God, meet with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all. My name is Phil. If you're new to our church, I do want to introduce myself. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you are visiting with us, I want to encourage you to do a couple things. Number one is we have a little QR codes that are in the lobby. And so whenever you come, just take a picture of that and you'll get um, our bulletin. You'll get the sermon outline and, and other announcements. And also uh, after the service, I invite you to come to the connecting point. When you head out the back doors, go to your left. Um, there'll be some people there that would love to meet you, and, and we have a little gift for you. Thanks for coming. Uh, those of you who've been here for a while, you know that we've been in a series on the church. And uh, today we're going to talk about the gathered church at the Lord's table. 
And I made an announcement last week that we were going to observe the Lord's Supper today rather than next week because we, um, by constitution, are supposed to observe uh, the Lord's Supper once a month. But we figured just in a few hours it'll be November. We're close enough. Uh, but also, the way that the calendar worked today, we're going to talk about communion and the Lord's Supper. And so, um, it would be best if we actually uh, participated in the Lord's Supper when we're talking about it. It's just an idea. And so, we're going to go ahead and do that. So, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open it up um, to 1 Corinthians 10. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you ahead of time, we're going to spend some time in three different sections. One section will be Luke 22, the other one, 1 Corinthians 10, and then thirdly, we'll look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so, I just want to give you fair warning and heads up that we'll be navigating somewhat in the Scriptures. And as you kind of make your way to 1 Corinthians, I want to remind you that a couple weeks ago, we uh, talked about baptism, and we also talked about membership. And we uh, are hosting our membership class, which is four weeks in duration. So every Sunday, it begins next Sunday. So if you want to learn more about what membership is here at Golden Hills and why we do it and its benefits and beauties and things like that, we have our class. And then the fourth week is our baptism class. Many people have expressed that they want to get baptized. And so I just want to remind you that we do have a baptism class um, that you can just come to. You don't have to go to the first three membership classes if you don't want to, uh, but we do tie them together because they are significantly uh, connected in relationship. I just want to let you know about that. Uh, today is, in fact, uh, October 31st, which is Reformation Day. That's right. And uh, so happy Reformation Day. And uh, some people are like, why do you always focus on that? And on this day in 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door in Germany. And that really launched uh, the Reformation. It's not technically true because Jan Hus and Wycliffe and some others in England kind of started. But let's not quibble over details. Um, but on November 1st is when the Catholic Church would uh, have their veneration of the saints called All Saints Day. And so on the eve of All Saints Day, that's where Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses and that became known for the Protestants as Reformation Day. And so that's, as a Protestant, we're not Catholic, so we celebrate um, uh, Reformation Day. It happened on All Hallows Eve. That's when Reformation Day happened because all, all, all Hallows Day is All Saints Day, which is November 1st. So on the eve of that was October 31st. But as you know, uh, a sinful culture takes good things and corrupts it. And so now we have little kids running around as ghouls and goblins uh, when we should have little Martin Luthers everywhere. <laughs> but yeah, that's the way it goes. Um, Anyway, so we have our uh, uh, Harvest Carnival today, 5 to 7, invite some folks. Uh, we're going to have over 50 cars where we have uh, uh, trunk or treat kids walking by. We're going to be throwing out candy and all that kind of, in celebration of Martin Luther. And uh, <laughs> we'll have bounce houses and we have food trucks and we got all kinds of stuff going on. So uh, anyways, a lot of work for all of us uh, who are having a car where we're going to decorate and have games and we got to get in our costumes and all that kind of stuff. So... Uh, this sermon will be long because of that. No, I'm just kidding. It's just normal, normal long. Um, let me say this too. It's kind of a, um, just helpful. At the beginning of this series, one of the things I said in the first sermon was that a series on the church for some people may seem like a waste of time. We already know what the church is. We know what it's about. We, we know what we do. And I said that we have to be very careful because sometimes familiarity with something makes us think that we are an expert in it when that may not be the case. And I gave the example of how I played baseball my whole life. I showed up to college, I have these amazing coaches who taught me a bunch of stuff I didn't even know. 
And here I was thinking, just because I played it a long time, I already knew everything. It's not true. Likewise, in the church, many of us have gone to church for a long time. We participated in various entities of, you know, baptism, communion. We've done all kinds of stuff. And we're, so we're like, we're experts. We grew up in the church. We know all about it. That may not necessarily be the case. It may be that as familiar as we are with the things of the church and what the church is, perhaps there are, for many of us, we're still in ignorance. We don't know exactly why we do what we do or what's the story behind it. And so today we're going to talk about communion, um, which I'm calling the Lord's Supper. And uh, the reason why we're going to do that um, and kind of explain it is because there is a lot of ignorance about what the purpose of this Lord's Supper is, why we celebrate it and all this kind of stuff. And also, I hate to say it, but many of us have probably participated in baptisms that weren't baptisms. We probably participated in the Lord's Supper, which really wasn't the Lord's Supper. There's a, there's a way that we ought to go about doing these things. And uh, so we have to be careful about this because we want to honor the Lord with what we do, with what he's revealed in his word. And so I remember one time being at a Christian camp where uh, I celebrated a communion with King's Hawaiian bread and Hawaiian punch. And I was served by a 22-year-old who I don't even think was a Christian, but he was a counselor because he had a lot of energy. And I'm thinking to myself now, looking back on it, and I was like, was the Lord honored with that? Like, we're just kind of laughing and joking, and I have some dude uh, who probably doesn't even know the Lord uh, handing me chunks of King's Hawaiian bread, which is tasty, and Hawaiian punch, tasty, uh, but that's probably not the point. That's not why we do that. And so I know that some of you have received a bit of heartburn and consternation for some of the things I've said about membership and baptism and you've been upset about some things, and, and I know that because some people have contacted, you know, like reached out and they're like, all right, I don't like what you said about this. And it was like, that's all right. I love the fact that we're talking. I love the fact that we're having conversations about stuff. I love that some small groups are just like, you know, just at it, just going, and they're disagreeing and talking about it. That's exactly what should happen. We should have intramural debates with each other. <laughs> And we should do it together and we should learn together and search the scriptures together and, and prayerfully ask the Lord, what, is, what do we have here? And then if you want, I can come and visit, especially if you have food. And I would love to come. And free food is just enticing. And, and some of you know my life's motto is if it's free, it's for me. So if, there, if one of us pastors or myself could help in a small group setting or whatever, if you have questions, please ask. We love talking about this stuff. This is important. Uh, this is good stuff. So anyways, I commend you for that. All right. If you have a copy of God's word, again, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll just look at these two texts and we'll come back to them and kind of uh, really work them out uh, more fully. But here's what the Apostle Paul writes about a participation uh, in the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. I love this text because what the Apostle Paul is doing is reminding us that communion or the Lord's Supper is not merely a memorial. It's a participation. 
It's not just, hey, remember stuff. This is not a mnemonic device. But instead, we are remembering something through participation in it. And so that's what we really want to focus on today is how we're participating as a gathered church in the Lord's Supper at the Lord's table. And so what I'm going to do is it's going to be in three parts. Number one is we're going to give a little bit of a context, a background, and we're going to start with the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we'll look in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 uh, to the end of that section, and we'll, and we'll kind of break that down and see, what the, we'll see how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Secondly, then we'll look at a participation in the Lord's Supper, and we'll see what that means to actually eat and drink uh, the bread and cup and the significance of his participation. And then thirdly, we're going to look at how the church gathers to actually observe the Lord's Supper. And so that'll be kind of the movements of it. And um, the third part will be more of conclusions. It will be inferences. And the reason why I'm doing that is some people have said, you know, Pastor Phil, I don't like what you said about membership because nowhere in the Bible does it say, thou shalt be a member. And I was like, yes, I know that. And nobody, you know, some people say, it doesn't say thou shalt be baptized and, and this kind of stuff. And I go, I know that. But if you take these truths and you put them together, then there is going to be a what is called logical inference. There's going to be something which you have to do about these truths. Something makes sense of these things. And so if you have these truths, then it only makes sense that we do this thing. And so that's going to be the same way that we go about looking at the Lord's Supper, is if you have all these scripture texts, it must mean this. So we'll start in Luke 22. To understand the Lord's Supper, we need to go back to what is called the Last Supper. And here's what we read, uh, Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table. You have to remember, they didn't have kitchen chairs. They had pillows. And so when they ate, they kind of leaned on their right elbow, left elbow. I can't remember. An elbow. (laughs) And the apostles were with them. And he said to them, the apostles, the disciples, he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So this is what is called the Last Supper. It is a Passover meal. Jesus, being a good Jewish man, was with other good Jewish men, and they were going to celebrate the Passover meal. That's uh, every single year. Um, That's a time in which the people of Israel would commemorate the Lord's deliverance of the nation of Israel where uh, the final plague in Egypt was that the firstborn of, of all the livestock and children of Egypt would die. However, there would be some who would be rescued or delivered or saved. And we'll look at that in a second. But then they were supposed to observe the Passover meal every single year to commemorate, to recall, remember um, what the Lord had done in the deliverance and the exodus and the Passover. And so here's what I want to do. I want to look at this text more closely and see that Jesus is doing something here, which, I, which is really interesting. In verse 14, obviously, it's the Passover, so he's reclining at table about to eat this Passover meal. Verse 15, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. He, he wants the disciples to understand that this moment in which they're about to share this meal together to commemorate the Lord's deliverance and the Passover and the Exodus, this moment is something he so longed for. I can't wait for this. I can't wait to be with you in order to eat this meal. It's going to be good. Why? 
Why is he so eager? Why is he so desirous to eat this particular Passover meal, not last year's or not next year's? Why this one? And I think the answer is this, before I suffer. And so what Jesus is doing is he's going to tell the disciples on the eve of his death, while they eat, he's going to help them understand something about himself. The Passover meal was celebrated on the eve of when the plague struck. Likewise, the Lord's Supper is on the eve of when Jesus suffers. And so there's a parallel there. Now, what I want to do is I want to show us the importance of understanding the the Exodus um, scriptures to to, to kind of shed light on this Passover meal. The first thing I want to show us is the eagerness that Jesus has to, to eat this meal with his disciples was because of how he was viewing his relationship with these disciples. And that is he was forming a new family. So here's what you have is you have the Lord speaking to Moses who's going to speak to the people about the significance of the Passover. And here's what God says through Moses to the people. And he says, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That is eating the Passover. You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And so when the people heard God's instruction through Moses, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. And what's interesting is this meal is to be eaten in one house. When you put these things together, here's how I would would conclude this. The Passover meal was intended to be a meal eaten by each family in the gathering of one single house. It was also expected that the children, should there be any children in this particular home, the children they would ask the, the authority, they would ask the head of the family, who is the father, they would ask the father, what is this all about? What is this Passover signifying? What is this service meant to communicate? What is this all about? And so the father, who is the head of the family, would go ahead and explain the significance of this meal. So think about it with me like this. Here's Jesus, eager to hang out with his disciples in a borrowed room where he's eating a meal And he says, I'm so eager to eat this with you before I suffer. What I'm thinking is Jesus is telling the disciples, you're not eating this meal with your family, and I'm not eating it with my family because we are now family. There's a new family. And Jesus is going to go on to explain this meal, and therefore he's going to act as the head of the family as they eat it in one room together. And if you remember what Jesus said, he said that he's going to suffer. And he's pointed to the fact that he is going to die by crucifixion. And this, I believe, suffering is a foreshadowing of what's gonna happen to him. And also this whole Passover meal is a foreshadowing of what the Lord's Supper means to us. But also it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus was gonna do in his life and death and resurrection. Let's go back to Exodus 12. Here's what we read about this Passover lamb. See, the meal had to involve a lamb, and it was to be eaten in haste. That is, they had to eat it like a, you know, like a to-go meal. Have you ever done that before? drive through, you get your meal in a, in a bag, and you sit in the car and eat it? That, that's like, yeah, we got to go. We got places to go. We got a red sea to cross. Come on. Um, so it's that kind of vibe. 
And this lamb, God instructs the people through Moses, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation, that's important, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and also on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So what's happening in this context, as you well know, is the people are going to kill a lamb. They're going to slaughter this lamb. It had to be a perfect, spotless, uh, blemish-free lamb. And they would take the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel. So that way, when God comes into the land to judge the people of Israel, or excuse me, Egypt, he would look at the houses of all the people of Israel who have blood covering their doorway, and he will pass over them. They would be delivered from the wrath of God. They would be delivered from the judgment of God because the blood of the lamb has rescued them. And Jesus knows when he's eating this Passover meal, I can't wait to eat this with you before I suffer. Whoa. Because Jesus understood that the Passover lamb and the Passover event was a placeholder until the real Passover lamb should come and provide final and full salvation. We know that to be true, that Peter finally understood what's going on because he wrote this in 1 Peter 1. He says that the Christians, they know that they were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers. But they weren't ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but they were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, which is like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Apostle Peter understands, he helps us make this connection that the Passover lamb that the nation of Israel used to cover their doorway, that Passover lamb is no longer needed because Jesus is now the new Passover lamb. His blood doesn't need to be spilled year after year after year because his blood is so precious, so powerful that he only needs to do it once and it covers the sin for all time. And so here is Jesus in a room with his disciples eating the Passover meal He is the head of a new family explaining what the Passover means, but he's giving it new meaning. He says, I'm the real lamb. I am the real head of God's people. I am the one who gives you your identity. I am the one who rescues you. I am the one who will preserve you. I am the one who keeps you from the wrath of God. I am the one. And I couldn't wait to be here with you to tell you so. Now, let's go back to Luke twenty-two sixteen, And now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to explicitly talk about the foreshadowing of his perfect sacrifice and how it, the Lord's Supper, which he's going to institute, anticipates a fuller feast. He says this in verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, that is Passover. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not going to drink and I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to celebrate the Passover because it's come to an end. The whole reason why the nation of Israel had the Passover in the first place was to help them understand who God is and what God has done. 
But now you come to understand more fully and more clearly who God is and what God has done, not because of a Passover event, but because of the Jesus event. Jesus is the spotless lamb of God. Jesus is the one who is our sacrifice. Jesus is the one whose blood covers us and keeps us from the wrath of God. It's Jesus's blood by which we have forgiveness and sin cleansing and atonement. It's Jesus who will be the one to fulfill everything that the sacrifices were pointing towards. They were merely a placeholder until the real sacrifice would arrive. And so Jesus says, look, I'm not going to eat again until the day in which everything is done. You see, when Jesus came, born of the virgin, living a sinless life, dying, being buried, rising from the dead, that was the beginning of the end. That was the beginning of God's redemption and reconciliation of all things. And Jesus now ascended to the right hand of God is one day going to come back. When he comes back, he's going to bring his kingdom in fullness and finality. And in that moment, when we see Jesus descending and coming, there will be a new kind of eating that's going to take place. You see, what Jesus is referring to is referring to what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's coming a day, according to Revelation 19, when all of those who are covered by the blood of Christ will one day sit in God's presence and we will feast with Jesus Christ. Not only us with him, like we're on a one-on-one or something like that, but it will be all who are covered by the blood of Christ will share together a corporate meal in which we will eat in God's presence and we will eat with delight and with joy because in that place and during our eating, no sin, no contamination, no pain, no sorrow, none of that. It's only righteousness and joy and the feasting in God's presence knowing this is amazing. And until that day comes, Jesus says there's going to be a placeholder. You see, the Passover was a placeholder until I came. And now communion is going to be a placeholder until I come again. But when Jesus comes again, it's a wrap. No more communion. Why bother with bread and juice when you got the real thing right there? And so, many people understood this. In fact, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, here's how he identified Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And that's why we read in Romans 5, 9, how Paul emphasizes this. Since therefore we have now been justified by Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In other words, now that the shed blood of Jesus makes us right with God, you need to realize you're going to be saved from the wrath of God. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen one second after you breathe your last, if you're in Jesus. You don't have to worry about that. Death, anyway, I don't have to worry about the wrath of God because the blood of Jesus covers me. Which means that there's an end to the animal sacrifices because Jesus is the one true singular sacrifice sufficient to take away sins for all time. And that's why, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian here, please, please be careful with how you interact with the Jewish feasts. Because many people love to be like so pro-Israel that you're like, yeah, I'm going to celebrate Passover. No, you should not. Eating Passover means that you don't believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. 
We are not Jewish people. We are Christians. Jesus has fulfilled the law. Which means we don't worship in temples. We don't worship by sacrifice. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our sacrifice. And to like, nah, I'm going to do this because it's fun. No, let's not downgrade or demote Jesus. It is finished, he said. And I think he meant it. So, brothers and sisters, similarly as the Passover meal is done away with and the sacrifices are done away with, so one, two, well, one day, two, communion will be done away with. We'll never do this anymore. Instead, we're going to feast in the presence of God. And that's why Paul writes this when he talks about communion. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, here's what we're doing. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. Yes, we're looking backwards and remembering something, but it's a proclamation, pro, proclamation. And it's going to happen until he comes. You see, when Jesus comes, like I said, it's a wrap. We're done. No need for communion, no need for sacrifices. Why go back to the shadows when you have the real thing right before you? Oh, that's going to be a day. And so the bread and the wine, as I said last week about the water and baptism, they are tangible forms in which we understand the promises of God. How do we know God will come through with his promises? Because you get wet in baptism. How do we know God is faithful to keep his covenant? Because you eat bread and you drink juice. Because in so doing, God is signing his name on the dotted line. He's giving you a handshake to say the deal is done. Every time we eat and drink, it's like God giving us a handshake. I'm coming through for you. I will not fail. Who can stop me? And so the bread and the sign, uh, the bread and the cup are signs. Let's go back to Luke 22, verse 19. In 20, so Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So what Jesus is doing here is he's giving them bread and wine. But he's not literally saying, this bread is my body. You're eating human flesh. Nor is he saying, this is my blood. You're drinking metallic-tasting liquid. Instead, he's saying, this is a sign. Now, we all know the the importance of signs. None of us think signs are artwork. At least we shouldn't. Unless they're classical things and you watch American Pickers and you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Signs are only good for what they signify. For instance, if you're on a long car trip with your family and somebody, some of the kids in the back are like, I gotta go to the bathroom, I can't hold it. You're looking for one thing. Where's the exit? (laughs) And when you see the exit sign with the arrow and you see on the bottom there's a Starbucks or a gas station or something like that, you're like, we've made it. And you pull off. You don't pull off the road in order to, you know, unbolt the sign and take it home with you because the sign is amazing. You appreciate the sign because of what it signifies. There is relief in that store for that kid. 
and it won't be in my back seat. Praise God. <laughs> Likewise, if a fire broke out in here, you would need to go to the nearest exit. And you know where the nearest exit is because there is a sign to point it out. I don't know if any of you are tempted sitting here today looking at these exit signs going, man, I'm going to steal that one day. (laughs) That's a beautiful piece of artwork. No. If there's a fire in here, that sign shows you the way to be delivered or to be rescued. It points beyond itself. Likewise, this bread and this cup that we eat and drink, that's not the point. In fact, they are signs which point beyond themselves. The bread's not the point. What it signifies is the point, namely the body of Christ. The the juice is not the point. It points beyond that to the blood of Christ. And therefore, the body and blood of Christ is the point. And that's what's so significant significant about communion. Now, what is that? Now, Pastor Jeff read these to you, so I'm just going to briefly point out a couple things. Think about the beauty of the bread and the cup in this text. Brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that is the presence of God, by two means. Look at the word by. There's two means by which we come into the presence of God. By the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. Which tells us There is no other way to come into the presence of God except for by the blood and the body of Jesus. No other way. And what we do is we eat the bread and drink the cup as we remember, Woo! no other way. And yet, I've been given the way. Jesus gave himself for me that I would have him. Thank you. And that is why communion... The Lord's Supper for the history of the church has been referred to as the Eucharist. Greek word Eucharisto, which means thankfulness or to be thankful, to be grateful. And so every time we eat the bread and we drink the cup, yes, I have confidence to go into the presence of God because of Jesus that I'm reminded of with this bread and this cup. Woo, thank God I'm not in hell today. Woo. And every morning I should encourage you. Wow, you wake up. Man, I'm not in hell today. Good day. It's a good day. And I'm not in hell today because Jesus has rescued me. And by his body and by his blood, he has made a way for me to come boldly into the presence of God in which I have full assurance of faith and salvation. (laughs) Communion is good. And we go on because Jesus said that his this, this blood is a sign of the new covenant. It signifies this new covenant. Now, what do we mean by new covenant? New covenant was promised in Jeremiah 31 and 33, and we see it in verse 15 of Hebrews 10, that this new covenant that God promises to make with his people, he says, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then God adds this to it. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. We as members of the new covenant by faith, we've been given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit empowers us to obey God and to love him and serve him in the ways in which he desires. But also we are reminded in the new covenant, that line right there, that the God who knows everything, the God who 
uh, has all knowledge all at once, instantaneously. He doesn't have to have post-it notes around. He doesn't have to have the reminder app on his phone or anything like that. God knows everything always. He knows the infinite possibilities of every potentiality. Everything you could possibly do which would result in anything else and then possibly what you could do because of that, God knows it all. And yet God who knows all this infinite stuff instantaneously and always has chosen freely and deliberately, there's one thing I will forget. I will no longer remember your sins. And you and I, we should be reassured of that because we're coming up on Thanksgiving and Christmas season and you have loved ones and family members and stuff that like to bring up your past sins. And they like to do so in very uncomfortable ways at inappropriate times. And you're just like, I'm dreading this. And you know some people in your life who constantly drag out the skeletons in your closet and like to hang your sins over your head. And isn't it awesome that the God who loves us in an infinite manner tells us, I will never do that to you. I will never hang your sins over your head. I will never make you feel ashamed. I will remember your sins no more. In Christ, you are free, forgiven, and cleansed. So, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Again, if Jesus' blood takes away the punishment for sins, finally, fully, and permanently, then you don't need to do anything else to get right with God, not even communion. Some people think communion is a time for you to to sit in your own thoughts and, man, I better get right with God because if I don't eat this bread and drink this cup in the right way, he's going to pew, he's going to smite me. It's going to be nasty. And so I got to get right with God. He's, and you get pressure. Communion is not a time for you to get right with God. Communion is the time for you to remember how God has made you right with himself. It's a time for you to cherish the grace of God. You don't deserve nothing but hell. And all you get is life. Instead, it's a time for us to go, thank you, God. I eat the bread and drink the cup, and I remember I'm not in hell, and I'm not going to be in hell. This is amazing. All right. A covenant is a relationship-forming agreement. So in the new covenant, there's a new relationship that is forged. God and us individually and also us as the church We are in a new relationship with him and each other because of the new covenant. And so by drinking this wine or juice, what we're doing is recalling the commitment that God has made to us in the new covenant, but we're also recalling the commitment we made to God in the new covenant. And beyond that, we're remembering that we made a commitment to each other in the new covenant. So when we eat eat this bread and drink this cup, we're reminding ourselves of this new relationship that we have with God. I have a personal relationship with God, but I also have a relationship with all of God's people. And this blood tells me that and reminds me of that and communicates that. Now let's go to the participation portion. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. What's amazing about this passage is it's a discussion about whether one can eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Basically, Paul says in verse 19 and 20 that idols are not real, and so eating the meat that is sacrificed to idols doesn't matter. But 
he does talk about this concept of participation. What Paul says is if you're going to eat meat sacrificed to an idol in the temple of an idol with other idol worshipers, how exactly are you not participating in that worship? What Paul's saying is context matters. What you eat matters. Where you eat it matters. With whom you eat it matters. If you eat meat, which is sacrificed to an idol, in a pagan temple with a bunch of pagan worshipers as an act of pagan worship, even if you're harder, oh, my conscience is clean. Paul says, no, no, you're participating whether or not you think you are. You are involved in that. It matters who you eat with. It matters where you eat it, and it matters what you eat. And so what Paul's saying in verse 16 and 17 is, don't you realize that we as Christians, we eat and drink complete for completely different reasons than other people? And don't you realize that the eating and drinking is actually a participation in worship? And if you eat it and drink it in a particular context with particular people, you're either right or wrong when you do it. So we need to pay careful attention to what we eat and who we eat it with and where we eat it. That's the whole thing. I don't have enough time to break it down more than that, but re read it. Again, if you have questions, Bo Lee at goldenhills.org. <laughs> Verse 16. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? When you drink the wine which is a sign of the new covenant in Jesus' blood for the forgiveness of sins, don't you realize that there's a participation that's happening? That word participation in Greek is koinonia, which is called fellowship. Don't you realize that you are having fellowship when you drink the bl blood of Christ? Now, our question is fellowship with who? Well, obviously with the persons whose blood that is, namely God in Christ, but also it's fellowship with whomever is also fellowshipping with God through Christ. So here's what I mean. Whenever we drink and participate in the Lord's cup, we are fellowshipping with God because it's his blood, but we're also fellowshipping with each other because we share the same blood. The bread we eat, the, drunk, the, the cup we drink, it's worship. And it matters what we eat, what we drink. And it matters who we drink it with and who we eat it with. Because whoever we eat it with or drink it with, what we're claiming is, I have fellowship with these folks and they with me. But how can you have fellowship with somebody who is an unbeliever and yet eats and drinks? And the answer is, you can't. And therefore, those who do not believe in Jesus ought not to eat and drink for themselves, as we'll see in a little bit, but also for us, for our sake. Because Paul says what, you can, you, you can read it in verse 21, you cannot partake of the Lord, of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You, you can't mix these two. Unbelievers who don't believe and believers who believe all eating the same thing because it matters. All right, let's move on. In the blood of Christ, there's reconciliation that's happening. As I've already mentioned, there's reconciliation that we have with God. That's why we read in Romans 5, 9, but I'm going to jump down uh, to verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? In other words, man, we have reconciliation with God because of Jesus. 
And we are not gonna, we don't have to face God's wrath because of Jesus. We're gonna be saved by his life, his his resurrection. And look at verse 11. And more than all that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It helps us to remember that kind of the mood of how we should take the Lord's Supper should be one of like, not somberness necessarily, but there should be a seriousness, but there should be joy at the same time. And I know you're thinking to yourself, how can you do that? Well, we need to take joy seriously. And we need to be serious about the joy that God gives us. <laughs> yeah, how does that work? In our culture today, joy means levity, frivol stuff. Joy is, I don't know, binging Netflix. And you're like, yay. That's not joy. Because when the power goes out or the internet goes out, you lose your ever-loving mind. You don't know what's happening. You're like, I can't do it. I need the internet. And you're calling somebody. And you're like, I can't do it. You pull your phone out. I got to finish the episode. You're crazy. Just me? Yeah, right. <laughs> but joy is abiding. Joy is lasting. Joy is not circumstantial. Joy is, some, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Joy is something that comes into our hearts, poured out into us by the Holy Spirit. Joy can be had in the midst of great suffering. Joy is something that you can experience even in the most dangerous, hostile, hard times. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is, look, the gruesomeness of the blood of Jesus, yes, should make us somber in the sense that it should make us serious, but at the same time, you should also be a people who are rejoicing in the fact that you don't have to face the wrath of God. You don't have to worry about God's judgment. You have life in Jesus' name. (laughs) Praise God. And therefore, we rejoice. I'm right with God because of Christ. that's a relief the other thing is this because of the shared shed blood of Jesus and I've used this verse countless times but let me just look at verse 13 and then we'll jump down to 16 in Jesus Christ you who once were far off have been brought near by his blood and then in verse 16 you see how it all comes together that God has reconciled us both to, God, to himself in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. We tend to think merely that Jesus died to save us as individuals, but we have to remember that Jesus died not only to save us as individuals, but then to save us individually and put us into a family. We are reconciled to God, yes, but we are also reconciled to each other. The blood of Jesus that gives us peace with God also gives us peace with each other. And we have to remember that as we participate in the Lord's Supper. This is a family meal. And Jesus has bought us in the plural. We also participate in the hope of the resurrection. I love this text. Let's go to uh, chapter 10, verse 16b. Don't you realize that the bread we break, it is a participation in the body of Christ. We participate. What does that mean, to have fellowship in the body of Christ? Obviously, it means we have fellowship with one another in the church. But more than that, I think this, and this is one of my favorite things, is when you participate in the bread, bread, which is the body of Christ, you're physically eating something. Have you noticed this? (laughs) You put like an actual, I know it's dinky, but you put it in your mouth. 
And actually, you can taste it. You're like, hmm, weird. But there. And you can crunch it if it's not too stale. And it can get stuck in your molars. And you can suck that out. It's real. Physically real. And it's a good reminder of the physical realness of Jesus Christ. God really did come in the form of a man. He had a real body. He really was touched. He has real eye color, real hair, a real voice that would reverberate over the water so that countless thousands could hear him from a boat preaching. It's real. And this real Jesus really did live and really did die. It was real blood that flowed down that Roman cross. It was real blood that pulled up in the dirt. It was a real lifeless body that was taken down from the cross. It was real herbs that were poured over his body and wrapped in the linen. It was a real body placed in a tomb. And thanks be to God, a real body that came walking back out. And if we are going to be resurrected with the resurrection like Jesus, then brothers and sisters, you're going to get a real body. This is what Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. We're not talking about spiritual life in this context. We're talking about mortal bodies. Your physical breaking down, getting back fat and back hair and everything breaking down, that body is getting renewed. It's going to be upgraded severely. And the Holy Spirit is going to bring you to new life and you're going to dwell with other resurrected people with the resurrected Jesus in a real physical place in which we will touch one another, high five each other, eat food together, walk down streets together, climb trees together. There's mountains in heaven. There are glades, which is meadows, and there are rivers and there are rocks. It's real. Because many of us have this, I, I did for a long time. Many of us think of heaven in two ways. Either we're the Michelin baby. You know what I'm talking about? The naked baby that sat in a tire and just floated through the clouds everywhere. And we're like, that doesn't seem great. No, it's terrible. Or it's the eternal church service. Which is, we have this infinitely large sanctuary filled with pews. And all of us wear robes and just sing a cappella all day long. Because you can't have drums in heaven. Everyone knows that. And so, and, and we just think like, I don't know if I want that. Well, pr bless, praise be to God. That's not what the new heavens and new, new earth is. First of all, we get there and it's a gigantic feast. The, the supper of the, the marriage supper of the lamb. We get to eat. And when we eat, we're going to eat together. And it'll be like the greatest feast you've ever imagined where you eat something and then you look at your neighbor or somebody you never met before and you're just like, have you, have you tasted this? No, I haven't. You got to eat it. And they're eating it and their eyes light up and their countenance gets brighter and all of us are delighting in the feasting. But more than that, like I said, we're going to be basking in the glory of God. There will be no sun, no temple. We'll just be in his presence. Sleeping, perhaps. I know I will. Napping. 
I just, I just imagine laying in a nice meadow next to a creek or a river, letting those sounds wash over you in a place that is not contaminated by any sin. There is no fear of death, no fear of any injustice. I am completely at peace forever and ever with everyone else who is there in a physical and real place. I can nap in a place like that. <laughs> and so when we eat the bread, this is real. 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 It's going to be real. It's going to be real. Oh, yeah. And also, our participation is an act of covenant renewal. Because Jesus said, This is my body, this is my blood. And the blood is the new covenant. And I love this text here. I've read it countless times. Just as the body is one, that is our physical body is one. We have many members. We got eyes and ears and toes and all that kind of stuff. And yet we're one body. So it is with Christ. Look, there's a bunch of us, individually a bunch of us, and yet we're one. Let me ask you this question. Where might we experience this many members and yet one body most explicitly? We as Christians, let me, let me ask, we as Christians, where are we going to experience it most fully and explicitly that even though there's a ton of us, we are one. Will it be at a, what they call worship concerts, but it really is just an entertainment rock concert. Is that where we find our unity? Is it eating at Mimi's after service? What do we do? And what I would suggest is the answer is the Lord's Supper. And some would say, well, isn't just attending church, isn't that how we're unified? No. Because unless 1 Corinthians is wrong, even here right now, there's at least one person here who, doesn't, who wouldn't say that they're a Christian. They're, they're a visitor. They're not part of us. And so even just a mere attendance doesn't make us unified. There's something beyond that. And it has to be the Lord's Supper. Because here's what I mean. Now let's go back to verse 17, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. Here's what Paul writes. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Because we, or for, we all partake of the one bread. So, let's say, look at it again. If you notice, this verse does not say, since we are one body and we are united as one, we eat bread. Do you notice it doesn't say that? Because we are united, therefore we eat bread. Mm -mm. It says, because there is one bread, we are all united. It's the bread that unites us. It's communion that brings about a unifying act. And so in the Lord's Supper is the time in which we experience the greatest form of church unity that God has granted to us. And that's one reason why some churches choose to observe the Lord's Supper every week. Other traditions will observe the Lord's Supper every month, like we do. Other traditions will only do it once a year because they will, they will hearken back to the whole Lord, uh, 
uh, Passover where they only did it once a year. And so they're like, well, good enough for them, good enough for us, once a year. But the Bible doesn't say how often you should do it. It just says as often as you do it. So what I would say is this. If we are going to be unified as a church, it's going to come about through our observance of the Lord's Supper. That will be the most powerful way that God will bring about a unifying effect. And therefore, what we need most in our day today is to eat this bread and drink this cup. All right, let me draw some conclusions. I'm running out of time, so I've made these short on purpose. There perhaps will be questions you will want to ask because of what I'm about to say. It may disturb you in some ways or ruffle your feathers perhaps in some ways, and that's okay. But let's walk through this. Five quick conclusions. Number one is this. From what we have read, the Lord's Supper should take place within a gathered church. The Lord's Supper should take place within a gathered church. I'm going to use the two adverbs, ordinarily and ideally. Ordinarily means this should be the pattern. This is the best practice. We understand there could be exceptions, but those exceptions are no reason to make the exceptions the rule. Instead, ordinarily, this is the best practice, is what we should do. And ideally means that to the best of our ability, what we can control, this is how we will do it. And so ordinarily and ideally, the Lord's Supper should take place in a gathered church, a local church, because that is what we see in the Bible. 1 Corinthians is the only book in the Bible that talks about how to do communion. 1 Corinthians, that's it. So we have to get our cues from here. So let me show you some cues. Verse 17 of chapter 11. Paul is upset with the church because they are not observing the Lord's Supper in a proper way. You probably don't know this, but for most of Christian history, when people observed the Lord's Supper, uh, the church didn't have multiple services. They had one service, and everyone got together, and they shared a gigantic meal. And in the course of that meal, they would eat the bread and drink the cup. However, the rich people got together in Corinth, and they got there a little bit early, and they ate all the food and drank all the wine. Then they got food comas and are drunk. And the poor people would show up to church to participate and would go without. And Paul says, this is ridiculous. What in the world are you doing? So let me just give you a flavor, verse 17, real quick. And look at this phrase. He says, I do not commend you, verse 17, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Jump down to verse 20. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And he goes on to explain how it's just a feast of sin. And then he recommends a solution. Jump down to verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Just because you're rich and privileged doesn't mean you get to bogart your way into the front of the line. Wait for other people. But my point is this. In the only book of the Bible and in the only section of this book that talks about how to do communion, it says four times when you come together. And my conclusion is it can't possibly mean, but you don't have to if you don't want to. 
And the whole idea is, brothers and sisters, we should take our cues from the revealed word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit rather than our preferences. And so ideally and ordinarily, it is a local church that will gather in order to observe the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not to be taking place outside of that. And it can't take place virtually. Just like you can't baptize yourself in the shower because you lose the significance and meaning of baptism, you can't take communion virtually. And I know that's making everyone mad watching this. You can't take communion virtually because you lose what it does. It unites the physical people you can see. But when it's just you and your wife or husband on the couch in front of a computer, okay, what does that mean? I know you're thinking in your mind right now. I know it. You have a bunch of what about scenarios running through your mind. But what about this? But what about that? What about this? What about that? Again, let's not make exceptions the rule. And I would say ordinarily and ideally, this is what we should do. Okay, number two. The Lord's Supper is to be explained by an authorized leader. If you notice what the Apostle Paul did with the Corinthian church who were just getting communion all messed up, he finally authoritatively tells them what this is supposed to be. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. We know that the Lord Jesus, by the way, he's not here on earth anymore, but instead he has delegated his authority and responsibilities to the pastors and elders of a local church, and also the Apostle Paul is carrying out that. Look, Jesus gave it to me, now I'm giving it to you authority that on that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes in other words the apostle Paul is being the head of the family and me explaining this to you, I am acting on Jesus' behalf to explain to the family what this meal means. Thirdly, here's another truth. The Lord's Supper is reserved for those who are participants of the new covenant. Since the Lord's Supper is a participation in the body and blood of Jesus to unify the church, it should be reserved for those who are participants of the new covenant. A covenant is a relationship-forming agreement. If this cup and, and bread we eat and drink to participate in the benefits Jesus has purchased for us through his resurrection, uh, death and resurrection, it would make no sense for somebody who's outside of that to participate in it. If you don't have a relationship with God, why would you celebrate having a relationship with God? Uh, if you're not married, why would you celebrate an anniversary? Does that make sense? It's, it's absurd. So it should be only those who are in the new covenant by faith that should participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, there are some traditions that would say you can only eat the Lord's Supper if you are baptized. And the reason why is because only circumcised uh, Israelites were allowed to eat the Passover. And if you wanted to eat the Passover and you were not circumcised, you had to be. And so they excluded the meal 
and reserved it only for circumcised believers. And so there are some Christians who would say, in light of that, we should only allow baptized people to eat the Lord's Supper. Okay? There are others who say, since the Lord's Supper is a unifying act, only members of the local church should be able to eat it. And that makes sense too. There's good reasons for that. Number four, the Lord's Supper is not a private devotion, but it is a communal meal. If you remember, there were factions and rivalry and disunity in the Corinthian church. They were treating one another poorly because of their ethnicity, their class, their education. It got so bad that it was affecting the church's worship, how they observed the Lord's Supper. And so the Apostle Paul writes this, and um, he writes this, and I think this is helpful for us to kind of sort out um, what this means. He, He writes this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And here's the solution, so to speak. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And here's the reason why you should do that. Because anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, how do you avoid being judged in the eating and drinking of this bread and cup? You have to discern the body. And what is the body? That he's referring to and I think it's twofold the body of Christ that is the actual person of Jesus Christ that if you don't understand that this bread signifies the body of Christ you don't understand that this uh, juice signifies the blood of Jesus then, then you're missing what's going on here but I think secondarily and I think actually this is what he means more that we have to discern the fact that we are a church We are many who are in one body. Because remember, the whole book of 1 Corinthians is all about rivals and dissension and and just hating one another and factions. And even in this section here, it's all about the poor who are getting mistreated by the rich. And so Paul's saying, look, if you're going to eat and drink and you're not going to think about other people while you do it, you're about to get judged. You need to understand, you need to understand that Jesus has a body which is his church and if you don't discern if you don't think about the church that Jesus has purchased by his blood then you're going to eat and drink in judgment so this is what gives the Lord's Supper its meaning and significance it's the gospel that we are sinners deserving God's wrath but God in his infinite grace mercy and love he has come to rescue us sent his own son to die for us. And by his blood, we are covered from the wrath of God, cleansed of our sin, washed anew, reconciled to a holy God, and also reconciled to each other. And now we are the people of God. And he is our God. And we celebrate that together. And if it wasn't so weird, I would have each of us eat and drink while we look at each other. And that's how it's meant to be. In the gathering of a local church, that's a family meal where the head of the family explains what's going on, where we discern it's not about me, it's about us. And I need to examine for myself 
whether I'm recognizing that it's more than just me here. It's Christ and his people. And we are renewing our commitment to the God and each other when we eat and drink in the Lord's name. And so it's not about your personal devotional time. It's not about you getting right with God. It's about how God has made us right together and you individually right with him. It is personal, but it is not private. You know the difference. You should have a personal relationship with God, but your personal relationship with God should never be private. It's to be public. Go public with your faith. Be baptized. Go public with your faith. Preach the gospel. Go public with your faith. Go to church. Go public with your faith. Eat and drink and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So now we're going to eat and drink in the Lord's name. And I pray, oh God, that it would be a joyous time but also a serious time. And you would feel both. So, Father, as we come to the table now, as a gathered church, I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Those of us who have gathered in this place physically, we are signifying our unity. God, we recognize that there was a service come before us, and so we freely confess to you that we are not as unified as we could be. And yet there are many people at home and many people who have neglected to come today for various reasons, and therefore they are diminishing the unity they could experience, and they're leaving some of the joy on the table. And for them, Lord, we pray that you would bring them to yourself and bring them to us and we to them. But as we who are gathered in this place eat and drink, I pray it will be a unifying act where we remember the body and blood of Jesus. But more than that, that we also participate in it, that we are reconciled to you and we are reconciled to each other. So bless our time now as we come in your presence to eat and drink in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus invites everyone who has repented of their sins, who have confessed their sins and placed their faith in his life, death, and resurrection for their salvation to come and eat and drink in remembrance of him. So if you have not yet repented and believed, then we ask that you please not participate with us because as I've said, you have no participation in Christ. Having let this salvation that is in Jesus pass you by, we simply ask that you let these baskets pass you by as well. But if you know your sin, you have repented of it, and you do confess it now, trusting in Jesus for your salvation, I invite you to come and eat and drink. We've learned today that we are renewing our commitment to Christ and to his church. We are remembering God's faithfulness in the new covenant. We are rejoicing in the saving benefits that Jesus has secured for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And now we are remembering the body and blood of Jesus. And in an amazing way, we may not realize it, but God is present among us. And so as these folks come forward and they're going to pass the elements, I ask that you would take and hold in your hand the little plastic chalices. And what we're going to do is we're going to hang on to these things and we're going to eat and drink together to demonstrate our unity in Christ. And until then, we are not going to sing, but instead we're going to sit in silence. Just as the psalmist says, be still and know I am God. So we're going to sit in God's presence in silence for the next few moments to examine ourselves, to discern the body, to be thankful, Eucharisto, that God has saved us because he loves us.
So let's do that now. I'm going to invite you to open the top layer, plastic layer of your chalice that has the bread, and I'm going to invite you to hold it into your hand. As we've already said, as real as this bread is in your hand, so really God has come. This bread, which is a sign pointing to Jesus' flesh, resurrected, and one day coming back for us is the assurance that you and I can have that one day we're going to rise too. And we're going to get new bodies. And we're going to be with him forever and ever. These things are real. And they're represented in this bread. So as Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. So church, together, let's eat in remembrance of him. And I invite you to turn over your cup. Jesus said this cup is a sign of the new covenant, which is my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The wrath of God is satisfied. Our sin is atoned for. We no longer have to fear. We are the blood-bought people of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And by this new covenant, we have relationship with each other and with God. So as best you can, without being weird, as the church, let's remember Jesus where he said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it, all of you, in remembrance of Jesus. So church, together, let's remember. And Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for how you so loved us that you sent Jesus, who came to our rescue, not reluctantly, but joyfully, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, so that we too can despise the shame of our own guilt, knowing that you will not remember our sins anymore. We are free, we are clean, And so, God, as we close this service, we are mindful of what Jesus did at the end of his institution of the Lord's Supper, where they sang a hymn together, and then they were dismissed. So, Lord, as the church gathered here today, may we sing this hymn together, and may we go out from this place with joy and gratitude in our hearts, thankfulness, Eucharisto, that today we have life in Jesus' name. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.